So Hebrews, Hebrews, uh, we're going to be at the end of chapter 5, and then we're going to get into Hebrews chapter 6 this morning together. As we get ready to get there, I just want to um, kind of set the stage just a little bit for you. So there's, there is this thing called fear that we're all very familiar with. Um, fear comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. There is fun fear, right? Some of us, so, so an amusement park is based on the idea that fear can be fun. As you ride the, the, the roller coaster and you feel your stomach either go up here or down here, that whole concept of, of fear is fun. Or, or perhaps you are, are mean and you enjoy scaring your family. Um, there is a person in my family who really enjoys doing that. Her name is Stephanie. She gets a kick out of terrifying people, particularly me. She thinks it's awesome. And, and a, months ago, I mean, this was actually probably years ago now, <coughs> I was here in the building, and I was the only one in the building, or so I thought. And it was dark. I didn't turn any of the lights on. I mean, it was daytime, so there was a little bright, but not a big deal. And I went to the restroom, and as I was leaving the restroom and walking back to my office, just doing what I do. And if you are around me at any point in time, you know that what I do when I walk, even if there's people around, is I hum sing, do a little bop doop doop boop boop That's just me. I don't know why. So I'm just doing that, and suddenly there was a hand on my shoulder. Now remember, I thought I was here absolutely alone. And there's a hand on my shoulder, and as I turned to punch the person who scared me, there was my sweet, innocent wife cackling, crying with tears in her eyes. Because she got me so good. So there's a fun fear, right? I mean, that's just this reality. There's also a bad fear. There's a bad fear. Many of us carry around in our lives the results of, of, of past, of, of history in our lives, hurt from relationships, uh, a lack of being able to trust. You're, 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 you're afraid of certain things. And you're afraid to move forward. And, and, and that robs you from the fullness of life because of that level of fear. So there's fun fear, there's bad fear, but there's also good fear. Good fear is you run from danger, you're, you're scared of heights. Being scared of heights is not a bad fear to have. That'll keep you from falling from heights. That's a good fear to have. But, but sometimes um, good fears can move into the place where they become bad Bad fear. Sometimes it's because we overemphasize a good fear. For example, with our children walking in the store as they begin to toddle about, and we don't have to have them in that little seat in the cart when we're walking through the store. Now they can, they can walk on their own, but suddenly they, they walk away from you. And so as a mom and dad, what your responsibility is is to pull them aside and say, listen, you, know, you stay with me. I don't want to lose you. If you walk away from me, I could end up losing you. That's right and that's appropriate. There comes a problem, though. That good fear becomes a problem when that child, every time you leave their sight in the store, they think they're about to be kidnapped now. Like, no, oh, they walked around the corner. Where's mom? Where's dad? For us, our biggest problem, I asked my wife this yesterday. I'm like, what did we do? She's like, oh, that one's easy. I mean, she didn't even have to think. Caffeine. I'm like, what? It's like as little babies, we told, nope, sorry, you can't have it. It's got caffeine in it. No, you can't have that. It has caffeine in it. You can't have that. It has caffeine in it. And so they developed this fear where it's like uh, you, you tell them, it's like, I'm going to have coffee. Dad, that has caffeine in it. It does. You're going to die. No, no, that's a little bit of a misapplication of the fear. The reason I tell you that is this. I need to walk through a passage with you this morning 
And as we walk through it, I need to walk the line of not removing um, attention that exists in the passage, while at the same time not adding unnecessary stress and an unhealthy fear to your life. And so, so, so it's really interesting. The passage includes this really good fear. And, and, and what our job as, as believers is, is to walk through the passage and allow the Holy Spirit to work in us through the words of God's word. And, and, and as God's word speaks to us, it works in us. And, and I, I personally probably wouldn't go about it the way the writer of Hebrews did, but let's just be clear, I didn't write Hebrews. Um, I think God has a plan. And so what I'm going to do is depend on this being the word of God, living and active and able to lay us wide open as the Holy Spirit of God works in us this morning. I'm going to ask that you just bear with me as we walk through this. And we're going to attempt, we're going to attempt to walk through what has become known as probably one of the most difficult passages in the entire book of Hebrews, if not the entirety of Scripture. And so it's going to take a little work. Um, Here's the hard part and the frustrating part for me. Only a small section of our passage this morning actually is, I'll say, controversial. It's only a small section of it is difficult. The point is very clear. But what has happened over the centuries and what the danger is for us this morning is we can focus on the controversy. We can focus on the, the difficult part, and we can miss the very clear point of our text this morning. And so in order to make sure that doesn't happen, what I want to do is give you the very clear point at the beginning here so there is no doubt. Here it is. Are you ready? Too many of us are stuck on the bottle instead of enjoying the barbecue. That'll make a little more sense to you As I start reading chapter 5, verse 11. The author of Hebrews says this, We have a great deal to say to you about this. And it's really difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. See, at this time, though, you ought to be teachers. But you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose, whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. What the author is saying is this. I, I, I just unpacked uh, uh, five chapters full of Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than every prophet. He's greater than any prophet that will ever come. His word is true and powerful and able to do amazing things inside of us. Jesus is the, the greatest man to ever walk on the face of the earth. All worship, all honor, all adoration belongs at his feet. I, I wish I could tell you more. But you're so lazy that you're still on the milk bottle I got meat for you to digest. I I could take you into deeper water. I could show you a greater beauty of who who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And how he's an amazing high priest. But but it's frustrating because I can't because you're too immature. You you should be teaching by now, he says. What does that mean? Well, does it mean I need to be a seminary prof? No. It means you should be so intentional, so enthusiastic, so excited that you are diving into the things of Jesus. However... You need to eat, and the only thing you can digest is milk. And he contrasts them with the mature. The mature, they, they, they go for the meat. That's the barbecue. And they get to enjoy that. And in their lives, they are able to discern what is right and what is wrong because they've been trying. They've been walking by experience. They've been diving into the very word of God. They've been applying the truth as it's been taught to them. But you, Hebrews, 
You're like a child and you're missing out. I've got these ribs that everybody talks about. How's the milk taste? Okay, now he continues. Look at verse 1, chapter 6. Therefore, because this is true, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of the hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. So what he's saying now is, you immature ones, the ones who are being bottle-fed, you, you can tell you're being bottle-fed because you are obsessed with the most basic of concepts in Christianity. You're, you're based and, and, and locked into the simple. He says, you need to move on. That doesn't mean leave behind. That means grow more fully into. It means you don't abandon these basic things, but you've got to get to something more substantive than the basic. You should know better by now, so stop resting in just the ABCs. And he lists these things, and there, there's three different categories that he lists here. He says, you need to go on to maturity, not laying again another foundation of repentance from dead works and faith in God. Those are good things. Really good things, necessary things. But those are the most basic beliefs when it comes to following Jesus Christ. You repent from your dead works and you have faith in God. You, you say, I'm living a way that is displeasing to my Father. I'm living in a way that is just, just doubling down on the fact that I am a born sinner and now I'm a chosen sinner. I continue to choose to sin and I need to leave that behind and I need to press on towards God. And then I need to put my faith and trust in God and in God alone. That means you've been to Sunday school once, right? That's not that complicated. I mean, he says you need to move on from that. Then he moves on to to the next two, which need a little explanation. He says, uh, move on from the teaching about ritual washings and the laying on of hands. What what those things are, while the first two are the most basic beliefs of Christianity, these are the most basic things you do when you start following Jesus Christ. The, 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 the ritual washings, that's baptism. The laying on of hands, that's how you were brought into the church family. Oh, good, good, you've been baptized, awesome, and you've come to church. Well done, way to go. So, so you've got the most basic beliefs, and you're doing the bare minimum of what's asked of you, what's required of you. And then he goes on to this last one, which I could get in a little trouble, but that's okay because it's Sunday, and there's a lot of forgiveness on Sundays, right? Amen. All right. Move on from the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. What, 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 what's, he, what's, he, what's he talking about there? <laughs> exactly what you think he's talking about. Um, that is your most basic religious obsession. It's not hard to see in our world today. Even unbelievers are absolutely obsessed with end times. Absolutely. And we sh- we, there's teaching. The word talks about it. And, and it's, but but, but what, what, what the author of Hebrews is saying, it is both unwise and immature to make that your obsession. So we need to stop fixating <coughs> on the book of Revelation. We need to stop fixating on timelines and current events and who said what and what you think and you know what, this is what this guy says and you know what, this is what's going to happen. You need to stop fixating on those things because you were never commanded to fixate on those things. Can I tell you what you were commanded to do, my brothers and sisters? Jesus gathers the disciples on the top of the mountain just before he ascends into heaven and they say, oh, Jesus, is this the time you're restoring the kingdom to us? 
Is this that moment? And Jesus says this, it's not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. What Jesus says is, none of your business. Instead, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. This is the last teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples here on earth. As they stand there, like, is this the day? And he's like, mind your business and get to work. There are things you are supposed to be doing right now. So don't worry about when Jesus is coming. Get to work. And it's amazing because Jesus is like, whoa. And the disciples stand there for what seems like an extended period of time in this passage. That cloud took him. Did you see that cloud take him? Where do you think he went? That was, is he coming back? What are we supposed to do now? What do you mean what are you supposed to do now? And my favorite part of this whole passage is as they, while he was going and they were gazing into heaven, two men in white clothes stood by them and said, guys, Actually, it says men of Galilee. Guys, why are you standing here looking into heaven? This same Jesus that's been taken from you into heaven is going to come in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. The inference is this. Why are you still here? He gave you a job to do. Brothers and sisters in Christ, instead of fixating on things that you cannot possibly have the answer for, let's start living like that at any moment Jesus could rip through the sky because he could. May we live like that and instead of being like, but I think if you do the math and you carry the two here and if you cover one eye and hop on one foot, stop it. How embarrassing is that? What must our Savior think of us? So I said it as clearly as I can. I've given you the power to go into the, all the uttermost parts of the world. Why are you still standing there going, I think it's today? No, live with that hope. But live knowing he's going to come back and ask you what you did with the power he's given you. I think I dodged that one okay. Those things aren't unimportant. The basics of faith, the basics of church membership, the basics of, 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 of a um, doctrinal teaching about end times, those things aren't unimportant. But if you're not applying them into your life, you have a problem. And that's the warning of this passage. And the warning is this. The basics of faith, the basics of being welcomed into a church community, and the basics of religious obsessions. Well, it's so easy, even unbelievers can do it. And that's his warning. Even unbelievers will focus on these things. And that's, that's where it gets us into a little bit of an uncomfortable position when we start reading the rest of the text. So jo join me here, starting in verse 4. See, it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm, they're re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it, and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it's worthless, and it's about to be cursed, and at the end, will be burned. 
Even though we are speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case, we are confident of things that are better and pertinent and that pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. So now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. Again, you hear it right at the end. I don't want you to be lazy. Too many of us are stuck on the bottle and you should be enjoying the barbecue. But in between, there comes this, this very complicated and difficult part of the passage and and, it's, and what's happening is the author of Hebrews is using it as a motivational fear for the Hebrew Christians, telling them to, to live in maturity because there's a danger in settling. And, and, and again, while the main point is too many of us are stuck in the bottle instead of enjoying the barbecue, okay, that's the main point. I do want to jump in just for a, a couple minutes and deal with some of the, the uncomfortableness of the passage that I just read. And, and I, will, I, will, I will couch it this way. I will tell you that I believe that what verses 4 through 12 are teaching us is this. You can experience spiritual things and not be a child of God. Okay? So let me, let me kind of walk through this just a little bit for you. The, the question in our text is, is, who, who, is who is it? <laughs> who, who are they talking about that it's impossible to renew the repentance, those who were once enlightened? Who, ta- who is that talking about? So there's two options. One is, is somebody who is not a Christian, a counterfeit Christian, somebody who, who's kind of like one of those people who, who signed up for the gym but never went. And then actually canceled their membership after never going. And that's kind of the first group, counterfeit Christians. The second one, it could be talking about real Christians who, for whatever reason, walked away. Um, and I'll just keep moving there. I, I believe strongly based on, and I'll show you what based on, that this is actually talking about some of those people, many of whom have sat in church since day one, some of you even sitting here right now, who, who are experiencing the blessings of God, the, the spiritual things that God has to offer, because you are living a God-adjacent life. You're sitting next to your mom and dad who are pursuing Jesus with everything they have. You're sitting next to a brother or sister who knows and loves Jesus Christ, and what's happening is the benefits that God is pouring into their lives are spilling out of their lives into you. And you're like, this is awesome. I can, I can get excited when we sing a worship song, can't you? I, I can get excited. I can get excited about anything. And that surprises you. But, but you guys, we can get excited about worship things. We can get excited about the things of God. We can get excited about working within our community. We can get excited about talking about delivering people from death into life. We can get excited about those things. But, but the problem is, is that if, if, if you're not actually in Christ, those benefits last very little. Um, this is why I believe this. This is why I believe that this is talking about those who appear to be believers but are actually are not. Those who have experienced spiritual things but aren't a child of God. First reason is this. You look at verse 9, what the author is doing. He is comparing being saved with those that he is talking about in verse 4. He's contrasting them. And so he changes things. But you, you're saved, inferring that the other ones that he had been speaking about are not. Verses 7 and 8, where he gives an illustration of the rain falls on a field, and in one field you might grow perfect vegetation with wonderful fruit. The other field will grow thistles with no fruit, and it's useless. The same rain fell on the field. So, so what is to happen there? The, 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 the author doesn't say, well, in this other field it grew up, and it was wonderful, and it was, it was, it was a, a great yield of fruit, but then it all shriveled up. He says, no, no, from the very beginning they were thistles. They weren't a fruit tree. 
And then throughout the word of God, you will find over and over again the teaching that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a believer in Jesus Christ. If you have been saved, you will not be lost. The pictures in Philippians 1, the one who began a good work in you will will complete it in you. John 6, Jesus says, everyone the Father has given to me will, will, uh, will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me that I should not lose any of those he has given to me, but should raise them up on the last day. John 10, again, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So, so I think that this is talking about those who have experienced the spiritual things but aren't saved. Frank, can that actually happen? Yeah, let me give you a name. Ever heard of Judas Iscariot? You ever heard of him? Okay. Pretend like you're not doing your connection card right now. Anybody heard of Judas? Oh, hey, man, good, good. <laughs> Thank you for doing your connection card. Um, Judas sat and heard all of the teaching that Jesus had to offer about the kingdom of God. He got to hear how Jesus was the one to come and, and be the ransom for the sin of many. He got to sit under this amazing teaching that you and I wish we could sit under. He got to watch every miracle that Jesus did. He got to see sight given to the blind. He got to see the lame leap. He got to see the, the dumb begin to talk. He, he got to see leprosy uh, just, just falling off of people as Jesus spoke into their lives. He got to sit in the boat. In that huge storm when Jesus told it to stop, and it just stopped. And he, along with the other disciples, said, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? He got to be there as Peter was walking on the water and, and got to see Jesus walking on the water. Can, can it be possible that somebody can experience spiritual things and not be a child of God? Absolutely. But Frank, he wasn't doing the spiritual things. I disagree. We are told in the Gospels that Jesus sent the disciples out many times to cast out spirits and to do miracles in the name of Jesus. Guess what? He probably was there. He was one of those disciples. I think that's why we're told in Matthew 7 that many will come at that last day and stand before Jesus. And as Jesus gets ready to cast them out, they're like, no, 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 no. We, 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 we cast out demons in your name, Jesus. We did miracles in your name, Jesus. We, we prophesied in your name, Jesus. And he says, all fine and good, but I don't know you. See, you can experience spiritual things and not be a child of God. Uh, I, I don't have time to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Some of you are like, we know. Um, the, the culture today in particular, the, 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 this popular thing is to talk about deconstructing your faith. And let me, let me say, just say a word about that because I think it's important that you understand what, what that is. Let me di just dive into it really quick. And again, this is going to be a very general statement. It's from my own personal experience working with people who have deconstructed their faith. And, and obviously, um, um, my personal experience is not everyone's. But this has been my observation of people who are deconstructing their faith. The cause for deconstructing their faith is talked about here in Hebrews 6, I believe. Because the, the, the hyper-focus of these people who have experienced spiritual things but aren't a child of God, the hyper-focus of those people is the milk and they lack the meat. And so, so, so almost every time deconstruction is associated with something that would be considered milk. It's some level of morality. It, it's some disappointment in your own personal Life. Morality is not the meat that is being talked about here. The meat that is being talked about here that Hebrews continues to get at is that no matter what you hold up to Jesus Christ, Jesus is 
greater. Everything else just falls away. But when you have a religious culture whose foundational understanding of religion and following Jesus, actually, when you boil it down to, is, is three words. It's this, moralistic, therapeutic, deism. The idea, the understanding what that is. Moralistic means I, got, I just got to live a good life. Got to do my best. Got to be better than somebody else. Just got to, you know, high morals, therapeutic. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel much better. It changes my life when I live this way because, because it, it gives me purpose. It gives me, it's nice to dig wells. I, nothing wrong with digging wells, but you understand what I mean? Deism, we just do it in the name of God or sprinkle a little God right up uh, on top of that. But here's the problem. If your spiritual understanding of who Jesus is and what he's called you to is boiled down to moralistic, therapeutic deism, then the moment that you step outside of that, that accepted moralism and like, but, but I like this. I mean, I know it's, but, and I know this is universally accepted, but, but I know people over here. Or, or, or you have a bad day and you feel bad, but so, so what my moralism and my deal, it's just not filling me. And so what ends up happening is that you start deconstructing based on things that are insignificant. Let me tell you this right now. What Hebrews is telling us is Jesus is greater than your feelings. He is greater than anything sin can offer you. Your your life and your salvation with, and standing with God is what has been given to you in Jesus Christ. It is not about just doing good and feeling good. But the problem is, is when we look at this passage, okay, this is where a good fear can actually get taken too far and become a, a negative fear. So we have to be careful. Because what can happen is some of you sitting here this morning will be like, oh man, it says it is impossible. I mean, that's what... What, what chapter five, uh, uh, 6, verse 4? It's impossible to renew to repentance those people. Impossible. Am I sitting here and it's, it's impossible? I can't? Oh, man. Well, let me tell you right now, brother or sister, if that's the way you are thinking right now and you feel that sorrow in your heart, that is a godly sorrow because it's leading you to repentance. See, this is not talking uh, uh, about somebody that Jesus is going to turn his back on. This is saying, Hebrews 6 is saying, some people will walk away, some people will reject the conviction that the Holy Spirit continues to bring in their life when they're sinning or when they've chosen a way that is, that is less than Jesus to pursue. And then at some point, the Holy Spirit stops convicting them and they grow to the place where they don't give a rip about what God thinks about how they're living. That's what this is talking about. And there's those people that won't come to repentance. Jesus will never say no to someone who says, please help me. We have a God who pursues us, not a God who's trying to, to wipe us out. There will never be a person who tries to turn to God and Jesus and God say, no, nope, absolutely not. The only time that'll happen is when you have breathed your last breath. So do you have air in your lungs right now? Then there is still hope for repentance in you. Because this isn't a picture of this this dramatic rescue. Let's say it's a fire. And the first responders come, and, and there's a person who is, who is trapped in the fire and is begging for them, please rescue me! And, and, and the first responders coldly turn their back to them. That's not this. This isn't the, the fire is burning and, 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 and the, the, the first responders show up and, and the person's like, please help me! And the first responder is like, I would, but I just can't get to you. That's not this. This is the fire is, is growing around the person and, and the first responders arrive and they say, I'm here to rescue you. And the person in the fire says, I'm good, thank you. 
That's what Hebrews 6 is talking about. We are called to not be lazy, but to be people who are spiritually mature. That means press into it. That means you start with one thing, repentance. Every day, every single one of us needs to live a life of repentance, Martin Luther said. The reality is we, we have much to ask forgiveness for. The good news is we have a Savior who forgives us everything. Maturity is understanding that it's not about how much you know, it's how much you obey. See, it's fascinating to me. There, there are people, and, and, and I'm, I'm afraid there are people even sitting in this room who have had their brains filled with Bible knowledge. Oh, they could quote to you the greatest theologians history has to offer. They could point you to the most fantastic books out there for you to spend hours upon hours studying, and yet they don't obey the most basic things that Christ has commanded them to do. They don't love their neighbor as themselves. They're not kind with their speech. They offer unhelpful criticism. They're unwilling to have difficult conversations because I just worry about knowledge. You, you guys can do the hard work. But man, they can tell you what the word says. That's immature. Jesus tells us that in John 13. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. He says in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. James tells us that even the demons believe the most basic things are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Too many of us are stuck in the bottle instead of enjoying the barbecue. Now, here's good news, guys. We have to obey, not just know. But here's the good news. You can only obey what you know. That's a process. That's going to continue on throughout life. Proverbs 4 says this, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, shining brighter and brighter until midday. Now you wake up in the morning, you're like, I got this. Oh, now I got this. Now I got this. Now I got this. As God continues to reveal himself to you and reveal the things that you are responsible for, then you obey in those things. You don't expect a four-year-old to be sitting down gnawing on ribs. Actually, if you raise them right, you might. I take that back. So while I may not understand that one, I can tell you this. If a 30-year-old is sitting here drinking a baby bottle, I'm calling the cops. Because we got problems. Things you see, the things that are revealed to you in God's word, that's what you obey. And as you go, it'll get brighter and brighter. And here's the good news. It's not a race. It's not about who's in the lead. Um, this passage isn't a about a telescope where you put it on, you're like, oh, there they are, way down there. Look, I can see all the warts and wrinkles on them. They need to get that fixed and that fixed and that fixed, and then they'll be mature. That's not what this is talking about. This is a microscope passage. This is saying, look at yourself. Are you growing? Are you maturing? Or are you living adjacent to the things of God? I, I, I be, I'll be very honest with you. <laughs> um, I have such a long way to go. Um, reminded of some things this week. Even, um, I have such a long way to go. But with Paul, I find it incredibly encouraging. He says, you know what, I forget the things that are behind. And I press forward to what's ahead. I pursue my goal is the prize of God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. 
And he finishes that passage, Philippians 3.15. He says, therefore, let those of us who are mature think like that. Are you pressing forward? We have every reason to. We have been given much. So, is it milk or is it brisket? Pray, Father, thanks. It's a goofy little thing, but uh, Lord, I'm grateful for small pictures like that that remind us of your goodness. Thank you, Father, that we can trust you and know you. Thanks that you haven't given up on us when we fall. Thank you that even in our weakness, we can be made strong if we depend on the grace that you offer. God, I, I do pray that you would you'd be with folks who are here this morning who may be living that adjacent life. Father, open their eyes to cause them to see that though they may be experiencing spiritual things, it might just be a result of everybody else around them. I pray that they would feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and fall on their face before you. And they would confess, as we confess, even with our singing, that we have absolutely nothing in ourselves to bring to you. We can just give you our thanks and our gratefulness for what you've done for us. So, so Lord, I pray you would rescue that person, even from the clutches of their own self-righteousness, of their own professional Christianity, whatever it might be. May they run into your presence. So. And God, as we close our time singing, Pray that you would be, get the honor and the glory. For it's in Christ's matchless name I pray. Amen. Would you stand and respond to God's word in us?